It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. It was none of that. It was, um, I had just gotten tired of it. It was over with for me. Like that cycle had happened, I mean, numerous times for me. It was just to a point where like I knew I had no choice but to change. And I wasn't going to be, I wasn't going to use the route of everybody else, you know, going to rehab or none of that stuff was going to be effective. It was up to me 100% what I had to do. And I had no clue what it was, but I went for it a whole hog. Like I just tried everything I could do to learn. Like I said, I knew there was more to it. There had to been something going on than just the desire to drink. For nearly 20 years, Eric Moon's addiction to alcohol ravaged his life. He'd fall to rock bottom, fight to rebuild his life, only to slip back into maddening but familiar habits. The most frustrating part was that he knew he was an alcoholic. He knew he wanted a better life, but like so many addicts, he seemed hopelessly trapped in a loop where he fought for a better life, only to repeat the same frustrating mistakes. And for 20 years, he felt stuck in this hopeless cycle. Whatever hold alcohol had over him, it seemed to be an inescapable grip. Welcome to Wild Why, the podcast that explores the reasons people seek adventure, challenge, and healing in the outdoors. Today, we bring you the story of Eric and Ashley Moon. Theirs is a story about addiction, about love, about betrayal, and ultimately, about what saves us. Eric's obsession with alcohol began when he was a teenager. Uh, for me, at first, uh, it started off as, like, I actually was super fascinated by it, so I learned everything I could know about alcohol. So, I mean, I learned how to brew beer, I learned how to make my own vodka, all this stuff, and I worked for the DABC at the time, and just would bring home different bottles and try things and not realizing the whole time I'm like oh I'm just progressively getting worse and worse and worse and then it got to the point where to get to work I worked in restaurant industries in Park City so like to get to work I had to drink to get to work because I had a hangover so bad so it was and it just kept snowballing from there and there and then I would stop for a little while get in some trouble get a DUI or something like that stop again start drinking again but I didn't know any other outlets. I didn't know any other lifestyle. I just knew that's what everybody around me did. They all went to the bars. They all drank. And so I didn't know anything else outside of that. I had no clue. There was this whole world of running and stuff like that. Around age 22 or 23, he realized he was a full-blown addict. And his behavior was taking his life off the rails on a regular basis. But as much as he wanted to stop, and despite what he tried, he couldn't manage it for more than a couple of years at a time. I was a skier growing up, so I skied a lot, but that was that was a as a part-time sport basically. So it wasn't enough of that for me, and I wasn't very good at it, so that didn't make it any better. <laughs> so did you feel like you had a problem at any point? I mean, would a DUI get your attention? Oh, I had five DUIs. I, yeah, I, I knew multiple times I had a problem. And I tried everything. I mean, I went to multiple rehabs. I went to, I mean, I mean tried everything to quit drinking. In 2013, he thought he'd finally found a way to beat his addiction. He had two and a half years sober, 
and he felt great about his life, which included meeting and marrying Ashley Moon. So I had two and a half years of sobriety there. Met her. Things were going great. But I got injured. I got uh, had three shoulders or three knee surgeries and two shoulder surgeries all within a six-month period. Got put on painkillers, then went from painkillers to a pain doctor, got put on morphine. And through that whole process, the brain I started just slipping up more and more. I started drinking in between the painkillers. Then the day I decided I I was like, I'm done with painkillers. Like, I remember going to the doctor. It was the day before Christmas, 2015. Uh, yeah, 2015. And I went to the doctor that day, and he gave me a slow-release morphine. And I'm like, I'm done with this. Like, I can't do this anymore. So I just stopped taking the painkillers. That night got just obliterated drunk. Got pulled over, got a DUI, went to jail, got served with divorce papers. <laughs> While he sat in jail contemplating his fifth DUI, his wife of six months served him with divorce papers. The reality is, Ashley didn't want a divorce. But when she talked to Eric the night of his arrest, he said something that wounded her so deeply that she questioned whether or not he even wanted the life they'd built together. When he ended up going to jail and not coming home that night and calling me from the jail, his first thing he said to me was, and obviously I know now, looking back, it's the, the alcohol and stuff talking, but I knew what I was losing when I walked in that bar. And I was like, all right, that's, that's my answer. And he asked me, I know you just got a credit card. Come and bail me out that money. And I said, no, it's going to go towards my lawyer. You'll, you'll be getting those papers. And, you know, some of that was definitely just out of hurt. Um, other part of the reasoning for... Um, me going that route was um, I thought maybe he made a decision when marrying me and didn't realize he was maybe he wasn't happy with the decision so I wanted to give him that out if that was what he wanted One of the most difficult aspects of loving an addict is feeling like you're competing with a substance. You feel like you should be more important than a high, that his love for you should be more important than getting drunk. We don't understand why they are willing to trade everything for something that's brought them and most of the people in their lives nothing but heartache and misery. Ashley had never known an alcoholic, but she'd seen the effects of one, and she knew she didn't want to let someone else's addiction destroy her life. My um, mom's father was an alcoholic. I didn't know him. He passed away before I um, was born. But I seen the effects it had on her, and I I had told him up front, like, you know, I know relapse is a possibility and things. I know that it is still in the future, but um, but that's not a route I'm willing to live with. So if that's what you want, you need to figure that out. And um, so I, I, for me, it was. I started thinking more logically at that time. Um, had to stop thinking with my heart. Even their friends and family warned her that this was just another bounce on rock bottom. She thought that would make extricating herself from his life easier. But Eric didn't do what anyone expected. And it allowed them to discover a friendship that they hadn't had before they got married. 
He had a couple of his family tell me, you know, it's going to be like when he got in trouble in the past. He'll get out. Um, he'll disappear for years. No one will know what's going on with him. He'll just be in that cycle. And my thoughts was, great, this divorce will be awesome for me. It'll be easier, you know, like I won't have to deal with that. But when he got out of jail that night, he ended up coming to the house. And he had a little bit of attitude. And now I know it was through the pain. It was definitely fear. pain and fear speaking. Um, but he called me the next day and he said, you know what, I will meet you at your work tomorrow. I'll sign these divorce papers, but I'm going to let you know I'm coming back for my wife and my family because that's what I want and that's what I know I want, basically. And, oh, okay, yeah, whatever, just sign the papers. And I had my my 10-foot thick wall up for a long time and um, just was like, he'll just disappear. Like that, I was waiting for that. And within a week, he had a job. Within a week and a half, two weeks, he was renting a room like three blocks away from our house. And so that was something I wasn't expecting. So that was my first thought. Does he really want to try with this? Like, but at the same time, had no intentions on being with him again. You know, I, I mean, I knew I still loved him and cared about him and wanted to see him succeed in life. So we would still talk and just do the checkup and How's it going? Where are you at? You know, and slowly kind of just started building that relationship off with a friendship and move forward from that. After this short break, Eric has to deal with the criminal justice system, losing his wife and rebuilding his life. Wild Why is supported by businesses that understand what motivates people to seek adventure, challenge, and healing in outdoor experiences. Eric and Ashley Moon's story is made possible by our partners at utahrunning.com, Deseret News Marathon, and the Salt Lake Marathon. We at the Loudmouth Project want to thank Steve Bingham Hawk and the Salt Lake Marathon for supporting the Salt Lake chapter of Team Red, White, and Blue by allowing them to run the marathon course as a relay. Instead of handing off a baton from runner to runner, they pass a flag and they don't leave anyone behind. They collect runners as they navigate the course. And when a team of about 40 runners finally crosses the finish line, it's something special to see. We got the word that you guys were within range, and then all of a sudden, I see this massive blob of red. So Christy, our volunteer director, and Jen, our marketing director, we all run up there to come see them, and it was incredible. I mean, I was looking at everybody. Carter's crying. Jen's crying. <laughs> Everybody's crying. And uh, and then what was great is the entire event focused back on the finish line at that point. Steve said it was a mission of Team Red, White, and Blue which is to enrich the lives of veterans through physical, social, and service opportunities that moved him to offer the team a one-of-a-kind opportunity. I knew we could trust you, and then I knew that whatever you would touch, you, you would have. So that was a big part of it. But also, I, I love the mission of Team RWB. I wish everybody had a Team RWB, and they can <laughs> if they yeah. join. Because, uh, you know, we all need to be banding together in, in this world that is continually divisive and and rooted in, in digital, which is disconnecting us all. The Salt Lake Marathon is the largest team event Team Red, White, and Blue offers its members. It's a chance for them to run for those who've served and to honor those lost in service to this country. So to Steve, Salt Lake Marathon, and to all of our veterans, thank you.
Alone in a jail cell, he started to search for a way out of addiction. But in jail, though, that was where, I mean, I made a decision there. I had no choice. It was like, get busy or get busy dying. You know, like, it was, figure this out right now. And so once I got out of jail, I got put in the drug court program in Davis County, which was a saving grace because, I mean, that thing is, a lot of people give crap for whatever it is, but it is a great program if you put it in the work. And it's a huge time frame. I mean, you're looking at 18 months to two years in this program. And the whole time in there, like, I just studied everything I could know about the brain, nutrition. I just kept changing every little process I could in my body. So nutrition was a big, big thing for me, like, where I sort of learned about that. The divorce devastated Eric like nothing else had. Even as he accepted the reality of the pain he'd caused, he also felt like he needed to do more than just find a way to stop drinking. His addiction, he felt, was more complicated than an uncontrollable craving, and the cure would through changing a lot more small, seemingly unrelated things than he could ever imagine. Well, I was devastated, but it was... I knew there was no way I was going to let that go. Like, there was no way, like... And in her mind, like, when she served me divorce papers, she thought I was going to come out and be the same... Or play the victim role. Like, it was... Everything was the world's fault. It's not my fault. It's not me that's drinking. I did the exact opposite. I took accountability for every single thing I did. I started just making giant steps in life. Like, just, what do I got to fix here? What do I got to fix there? What do I got to fix here? Like spirituality, like, I say, like, nutrition. I just started going, diving into every little aspect. Because I knew it wasn't, for me, I knew it was more than just a desire to drink. Mm -hmm. I knew there was something else playing a role there. And so... I started really studying about the brain and really about like all the different chemical processes that went on there, and that led me to nutrition. The realization that he needed to change brought on another epiphany. His path to sobriety, it was going to look a lot different than he'd envisioned in all those other attempts. And he's clear about the fact that it wasn't any single thing, not jail, not the divorce, not the mounting losses in his life, that shocked him into action. It was just fatigue. I had just gotten tired of it. It was over with for me. Like, I didn't... That cycle had happened, I mean, numerous times for me. It just kept rock bottom. I've been on there a bunch of times. And so it was It was just to a point where, like, I knew I had no choice but to change. And I wasn't going to be... I wasn't going to use the route of everybody else, you know, going to rehab or none of that stuff was going to be effective. It was up to me 100% what I had to do. And I had no clue what it was, but I went for it. A whole hog like I just tried everything I could do to learn like I said it was, I knew there was more to it there had to have been something going on than just the desire to drink still guarded Ashley joined Eric in his exploration of healthier lifestyle choices as friends some of it was interesting and enjoyable some of it was frustrating I like seriously had an attitude problem with him with that but then Honestly, like, he went cold turkey. He gave it all up. I tapered. I'm a taper person. I was like, I'll do a little less each day, get it out of my system, and then I can do without it. And I loved it. I loved the way I felt on it. Like, when I was eating that way, I I enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. um, so when we ended up eating carbs again, um, I didn't feel as good. I didn't feel as healthy. So so you, did you think, though, like, he's lost his mind. Like, what is he doing? Or yeah. did you think, man, I guess this is good for him, but... I thought, you know, this is good for him, and I'm willing to be there. To and I love... So I do get frustrated a little bit because I've always loved running. I'm not good at running, and 
he I would get up and run on the treadmill all the time and he'd be like I don't know how you do that I don't know how you run or I'd go out and run I don't know how you do that but now he's the runner and he's really good at it and I'm like dang you but it's been exciting to watch him find someone some other identity even as Eric tried to show Ashley that she could trust him that this time was different he was floundering while he desperately wanted to be sober he just couldn't find a path that felt right for him. When I got sober, I kind of was lost. Like, I knew I was doing the whole AA thing and wasn't really working for me as much and ran into the addict athlete group in Davis County and kind of messed around with them, started running every now and then, but I was into fitness pretty hard still at the time. And running was something I was like, I'm not a runner. I'm never going to run. And then, uh, but I always had this, like, deep, down thing where I needed to be competitive and challenge myself and I watched him I was homesick one time and I watched the Barkley Marathon on Netflix and I was sold instantly I was like that is what I got to do like I want to see how far I can go so she came home that night I'm like babe we're going to sign up for a 50k she's like what is that I'm like remember the five kids like way more The Barkley Marathons is one of ultra running's most iconic and unique races. Just about every detail of the 100-ish mile race is unusual. From the secret application process, to the $1.60 entry fee, to the start signal being founder and race director Gary Lazarus Lake Cantrell lighting a cigarette. Since it started in 1986, only 15 runners have finished the race, although two of those runners have finished multiple times. The race is the subject of several documentaries, and it was one of those that Eric watched in 2017. It moved him in a way that nothing else had. Six months later, he ran his first ultra, a 50K. A sport he'd never considered, that he didn't really even know anything about, was the first glimpse of hope he'd felt. i never seen another side of it. Like, I always thought that was kind of just my lot in life. You know, I never took accountability for those actions. I always told that you're an alcoholic. So, oh, yeah, it's disease, so I'm an alcoholic now. That's who I am. And that's, today, that's not the truth whatsoever. Like, I'm not even close to an alcoholic. That's where, learning that, too, in my brain, it was like that switch. Like, you're not an alcoholic. You're different. You're more than this. What are you going to do about it? Like, how are you going to fix this? Ashley and Eric still have battles to win. But he's fighting them with a kind of clarity and commitment that is different. Getting to this point forced Ashley to examine her own behaviors including some that were caused by living with an addict. I could tell the difference between like his manipulative tactics from when we were married, his lying and his deceit, versus like as time has gone on, watching his journey unfold, um, watch him become more of an accountable person and, oh, yeah, I, I messed up. He still has thought processes that I'm like, dude, like, really? You didn't think about telling me this? And, oh, I really didn't. And, like, I can tell the difference. And, um, it, you know, he's, he's a good man. And every morning he gets up, makes us coffee, makes breakfast, makes lunch, makes dinner, like, to make sure we're eating healthy because he knows more about nutrition than I ever would. So I'm all for his eating because he makes it. <laughs> At what point did you decide, like, I'm going to give him a second chance? Like, you obviously didn't rush back down the aisle again, but you said, you know what, I'm going to let you back in. I'm going to trust you. It took a few months for me to even, like, trust having him back in my life. On Why is he laughing about that? 
Because <laughs> you still don't. <laughs> he thinks it was fast, but in his head, we never were apart. But in my head, I was like, I still had this wall. I still wasn't trusting him. But and he's still. What was it two years now? Yeah, he got to move back in two years after being released from jail. Um, you know, what was we still, that like? What was that like living with him again? Well, I I now knew it was hard actually um, when he moved back in. I when he was heavy in his addiction, I. I became compulsive with certain behaviors as far as I was waiting for him to leave for work every morning and I would search my entire house. I would look for things that he was hiding or being dishonest about. And when he got out and I told him, I was like, you made me crazy. Like you literally, I felt crazy. So when he first moved back in, I, I remember I, I started doing that. I did it a couple of times and then I... I told him when he got home from work one day, I was like, I've been searching the house. Like, I just feel like I have to. And he's like, you can search whatever you want. Here's my bags. Like, here's this, you know. He, he's very understanding, and he's, he knows that his actions caused certain thought process within myself. Um, he knows that my self-esteem definitely took a very big hit when he ended up in jail. Um, and feeling like I wasn't enough for him, feeling like I he made a wrong choice marrying me. That, that's how I felt, and it is hard not to make it personal. And I know now, looking back, it wasn't about me. It was about what he was going through internally. Um, but there's a difference between what your brain knows and what your heart feels. Right. Right? Exactly. And, it, and your heart feels like, if you loved me like you say you do, you could resist the, yeah. the pull. Right? Exactly. That's how your your heart feels that way. But I didn't realize how no matter how much at that point in his life he wanted to be sober from things, what he was going through internally. And I wanted to fix it. I wanted to change it. But it took me all these years still now to realize I can't fix him nor anybody else. The only person I can work on is myself. I had to start taking accountability for things within our relationship that I know now wasn't healthy or right. Um, I had to let go of the reins a little bit and say, okay, you are your own man. I am here to love you and support you, but I can't make your choices for you, nor will I try to force them on you. And I think that's really what helped our relationship um, thrive. We, he felt more comfortable to come to me and approach me with thoughts or feelings that he was maybe having or struggles he's going through where I never let that be a safe place for him when we were married because I wanted so much control of it. I didn't realize it at the time that that's what I was going through but um, throughout our process I learned like I wanted too much of that control and to make his decisions for him and I couldn't. All I could do is be there and love him and let him figure out who he wanted to be. Today, Ashley goes to every race Eric runs, and she said the finish of his first 50K was life-changing for both of them. The first one, that one was awesome because I I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know how long of a day it was going to be just waiting, and 
I seen him coming down the mountain, and he finished the line, and I grabbed the chair for him and let him sit down, and I turned around to grab something else, and as I turned back and I looked at him, he was just bawling. He had tears just running down his face. I was like, are you okay? Are you injured? And he's like, no, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm proud. I'm proud of myself. And I was, that was a tender moment because I'd never seen him get way emotional of something, especially something that he accomplished on his, on his own accord. And he, he realized he could do harder things. Eric doesn't measure his success by the days he's been sober. Getting involved in Addict to Athlete taught him that acknowledging his addiction was different than defining himself by it. It's a mental thing. It's a total mental stopping gap. I mean, it gives you a fail-safe, basically, if you're an addict. If you are told you're an alcoholic and you think you're an alcoholic, when it comes, even if you're sober, like, you always have that back door. Like, well, if I'm an alcoholic, I can relapse, you know, or I can, it's okay for me to feel like this because I'm the alcoholic, you know, the whole victim stance of it, and my brain doesn't work like that. It doesn't sit well with me. So it's, now I don't, I don't even, I, I couldn't even imagine drinking now. Like it wouldn't be, and it's just because I made that switch in my brain where I'm no longer the alcoholic and it's, now I'm an ultra runner and that's a big difference in how I think about life. I don't even approach it in the same way. But yeah, there is a, it's a stigma you get put on and it doesn't go away unless you change that. And so, I mean, I don't love that whole thing, like alcoholics, where you go into a meeting and you say, oh, hi, I'm Eric, I'm an alcoholic. That doesn't fit with me today. I mean, you, I changed. Like, it's a completely different person. I mean, I may have an alcoholic tendency still, some beat buried down in there, but I actively make it so that doesn't happen anymore. I get away from that so much. And that's one of those things in those meetings where, like, in AA meetings and stuff, where they you're constantly reliving those times and you're just rewiring those synapses in your brain and that just never set well with me I didn't like that idea of doing that it is difficult for Eric to encapsulate in words just how different he thinks feels and lives now that he's become an ultra runner uh, for me first off it'd be I'm capable of way more than I ever thought possible in my life. I mean, I was a smoker. Like, I you know, I was an alcoholic. Like, I did. Now I'm running as far as I can possibly go. Like, I, I know that the human body is capable of way more than you ever thought it was. And you yourself is capable of way more than ever possible. And that translates into life. Like, stressful things aren't so stressful anymore. Like, normal stressful things, I guess. And Things don't affect me the way they used to. I don't get overwhelmed because I've been in situations that are harder than that, and I've figured them out. And so that that's a huge takeaway. And then just the pouring of, like, outpouring from other people in that community. Like, they're everybody from the slowest to the fastest are all there to support one another in some aspect. There's no, oh, I beat you, bro, like none of that stuff. Like, it's... Like, oh, you ran this pace? That's rad. You know, even though that person's running a five-minute mile, like, you are they all care about each other. And that's a huge thing. I mean, that's that's what life should be like in general. <laughs> so, yeah, so it feeds that competitive edge, but it doesn't cross over into an unhealthy sort of compare yourself to everybody else and beat yourself up because you didn't win or exactly. you didn't get some time that you wanted. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, 
I do that within myself sometimes, you know, like I want to run a little faster here, do this differently. And I mean, I set high standards, like for my next hundred mile, I'm going to do, I want sub 24 and only a few people do that. But it's for me, I know it's capable. So yeah, I'm competitive within myself and it's not, it doesn't have to do so much with a competitor next to me. It has to be with competitive in myself. And that's, that's what I like. That's nice. So have you ever DNF'd? Yeah, I actually did a Twisted Fork this year in Park City. I got hit by a mountain biker at mile like 17 or something like that, and it just jacked my IT band right up. Like I tried, I limped out for another three and a half miles to mile 20, and I had to stop, and that was crushing. Like I did not, but I had, I couldn't do it. Like I couldn't go any further. Like there was no way. I mean, I was limping. It would, I would have never made the cutoff time. I mean, hindsight, I look back, I could have, maybe. I. <laughs> no, I know better. So this year I'm going back and that thing's mine. So that's one of the things with ultra running like it is. I mean, it is it is hard, but that sport is so – that's another reason why I like this sport is it's, there's so many factors that play into it. It doesn't matter if you're the fastest. You keep the fastest people in the world, like Killian Jornea this year in UTMB. Like, I mean, he got stung by B to drop him out. Like, who would think a B would take you out of a race? You know, like, yeah, that happens in ultra running. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. So many different factors play into that. And it's how you can troubleshoot those and work through them and then just make those decisions in your brain. Like, is this really quitting or is this something I need to do right now? And like, so yeah, I like that whole thing. I think that that's one of the facets of it that I really love is, uh, is this pain, pain that I, I just have to endure or is this pain telling me you're done? Right. Yeah. Um, I always. Uh, is this the wall or is this me being a baby? Yep. <laughs> and I I think that's probably where the most self-discovery happens. It's for sure is. That's where like once I learned that 40, 60 or 40, 60 rule from David Goggins saying like, well, you're 40 percent. If you're ready to quit, you still have 60 percent more of your body. And I was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. So, yeah, now every time I'm tired, I'm like, what are you doing right now? I'm like, come on, push harder. Looking back into it and seeing looking at my life, it was I had no identity. I had no confidence in myself and whatever was there, it was all false. And so that was for me, the addiction was different. So now this way, I mean, I'm obsessed with it because I think to be successful in some things, you have to be kind of obsessed. Like, I mean, you have to. <laughs> so, it's a fine line between commitment and, yeah. and obsession, right? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I, I do always still prioritize my life over my wife and my family over my running. And that's, kind of the fun balance there like and she i mean sometimes it will get like especially coming up in these next blocks where i'm running basically all weekend just to train and it will get a little stressful but she knows i'm doing it for more than just myself running and that's one of the reasons why i like ultra running as well now is too or for me why i run is because i want i would love for someone else to see that like even if you're i'm addict or diabetic anything and they're just lazy and not getting off the couch they can see that it doesn't matter what your state is right now. You can change that. And if I'm that person that they see and see me doing that, then I'm totally cool with that. So that I, that part is one of the reasons why I run outside of myself. And that's I like that part too. Because like, if I mean if I come back from being a smoker to this and like and I'm running 50 miles, like <laughs> that's that's you can do it too. So Ashley and Eric have endured more than addiction and divorce. They've dealt with miscarriage and mistrust. And they've learned to forgive themselves and each other. They're still not remarried, even though they both acknowledge that's what they're working toward. Ashley and Eric Moon are careful not to claim that they have any answers for anyone other than themselves. 
They decided to share their story so that anyone struggling with any situation can find hope in just continuing to do the work. If you're willing and you're working, good things are going to happen. If there's any truth in what they've learned, it's that no pill, no program, no partner, not even the most enduring love can save you. It's like Alice Siebel said in her book, Lucky. No one can pull you back from anywhere. You save yourself or you remain unsaved. Thank you for listening to Wild Why. If you have a story about how you found healing and transformation in outdoor challenges, please consider sharing. Email us at tips at loudmouthproject.com or reach out to me directly at amy.donaldson at loudmouthproject.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider subscribing to it on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, however you listen to great podcasts, including the KSL app. And please rate and review us because that helps us grow our audience and allows us to continue bringing you inspiring stories. I want to thank Josh Tilton, a.k.a. The Wizard, for making this podcast possible. Welcome to Inside the Training Room, where we explore strategies to get fitter, faster, and stronger with the support of our friends at utahrunning.com. You have the why, now learn how. Welcome to another episode of Inside the Training Room. Uh, Today we're going to talk to somebody uh, who's going to rock our world, so to speak, right? Uh, Julie Hansen, and she's a registered dietitian, and I'm going to let her introduce herself, and then we're going to talk about diets. Mm. Okay. Thank you, Amy. Yes, my name is Julie Hansen. I am a registered dietitian. And actually, our um, National Academy has added the word nutritionist to our name. And I used to never like that word because anybody can call themselves a nutritionist. So you have to be really careful when you're seeking nutrition advice. So I'm a registered dietitian nutritionist. I'm also an exercise physiologist. And I'm a sports dietitian. So I work a lot with athletes. I work with the um, Weber State Athletic Department and oversee a lot of the um, athletes there. And then I also have a private practice called Julie Hansen Nutrition. And I also have a Facebook page. I'm hoping you guys would ask to join it. It's called Practical Sports Nutrition. So I would love to have you guys in my Facebook group because we're going to talk about stuff like this too. But so that is me. Yes. Yeah, perfect. No, and so so let's talk about diets versus uh, – I just – I mean I think everybody and I think w- women especially, whenever I talk to women about why they get into sports or why they're doing what they're doing nutritionally, it always comes from I – I, I had kids. I was overweight or I, need, I wanted to have a healthier lifestyle. Actually, healthier lifestyle is what we should be saying but usually it's I needed to lose some weight. Um, so t- tell me this diet versus nutrition universe, because I think that might be one of the reasons they added that to your title. Yeah. Yeah, So I do find that athletes are very concerned about their weight and for a lot of reasons, because of performance as well. Um, But, you know, the problem is that um, especially endurance athletes, that that can hide a poor relationship with food so that they're 
calorie burn can be so high that sometimes they don't really have to pay attention to what they're eating. So I really do promote a non-diet approach to eating. And so I really try to work with athletes to get them to consume carbohydrates because that is their best fuel. And it seems like a lot of them want to restrict. And so we really try to work on that. Um, Before you get to the, you know, what's good for athletes, because I definitely think that's good. Tell me why... Diet's such a nasty word in our lingo, right? Why do we hate that whole idea of like examining our diet or taking control of the diet or whatever? Why, why is that such a, uh, you know, an emotionally draining subject? Okay. So I call that the diet mentality and it, and there is such a thing. The diet mentality, um, is such that it makes it really hard to become a normal eater. And so when you're constantly judging what you're eating, it's really hard to eat normally. And we also, it tends to elevate the power of food. So when we, we tend to think of food as good or bad, and then we become good or bad and which can also influence your family as well, because Kids will hear you talk, and then they think they might be bad if they ate a bad food. So you have to be really careful with the, the food talk at home, too, if you guys are parents. But but going back to this, I was talking to Amy a little bit, too, about the difference between a diet and a lifestyle. And, you know, a lot of the diets out there right now are marketing themselves as this is a lifestyle. It's not a diet. Weight Watchers is one. Um, and, you know, anytime you look at you're counting points, you're getting on a scale – I'm here to tell you that is a diet. So we're looking at something that you're going to do permanently. So when we look at that, it's more of a change of habit. So for instance, um, what I try to help people do is really try to assess um, how they're feeling, like if they can start to feel full at a meal. Um even eating outside of hunger can be, you know, again, a problem. But if you're on a diet, you don't really pay attention to any of that. You just eat according to the diet. But eventually, you're going to need to rely somewhat on your body signals. So again, eating when you're hungry, stopping when you're full. Um, I know that sounds very simple, but it's actually somewhat difficult to do. Um, But so creating that normal relationship with food and normalizing food so that food doesn't have any power over you. I just wonder, like, how did our relationship to food become so dysfunctional? So it happens because we want to, because of dieting, basically. Um, There was a study done back in um, World War II, and it was called the Hunger Study. And it has kind of been renamed the Starvation Study. We couldn't ever have a study like that now. But what happened was we took, um, there was about 32 men who were conscientious objectors who did not want to fight, um, but they decided they wanted to do something for their country. So they set up a lab at the University of Minnesota, and, um, and these men signed on for a year. So the whole goal of the study was to know how to feed people who came out of concentration camps. Um, So these men were, for three months, fed normally. And then for the next six months, they were put on a 1,700-calorie diet, which was semi-starvation for them. And so they lost a lot of weight. But what we also noticed from them is how their mental state changed, you know, what they thought about, how they acted. They became depressed. They became very obsessed with food. That's all they thought about was food. Pictures of food on their walls. They talked about food. In fact, after the study was over, many of them became chefs. (laughs) Um, And then the next three months, they they were allowed to regain their weight. And so they fed them normally. And many men were binge eaters eating between eight and 10,000 calories a day. So it actually forever changed their mind. I mean, changed their lives. And 
I think the the effects of dieting are such that we just can't feel restriction for very long. And um, it, I mean, we can even look at some of the, the studies done from the biggest loser studies. It's really hard to maintain restriction so that eventually we do need to maintain a healthy relationship with food. But kind of back to the study. So it's interesting. The war ended before they were able to use the results of the study, but we do apply them to what we know about dieting now. But that is is kind of it, Amy, is that when you feel restricted, it does really change your mentality. And so if you do have weight concerns, um, if you are trying to lose weight or if you um, are training for something and you every pound does count if you're running or if you're high, you know doing ultras, um, what would you suggest? Like what should the relationship with food look like if you're trying to be trying to do a lifestyle that's healthy versus trying to diet to lose weight for a race? Yeah. So I think it's also about finding what your natural weight is. And sometimes that's not where people think it should be, but it's kind of your natural fighting weight, I guess. And so remember the lighter you get, you're also going to be losing muscle mass. So I guess I would say, make sure that you're, you have an appropriate goal there. And then I think too, with sports nutrition, sometimes you are going to have to eat outside of hunger to make sure that you're nourished. So for your sport, you need to eat, you need to make sure that you're fueling appropriately. And sometimes with dieters, that doesn't happen. So I think the relationship should be um, definitely including all foods, all foods can fit, but um, really avoiding eating um, outside of the normal hunger and fullness cues. And, you know, again, if you're on a diet, actually what we find is people can actually gain weight sometimes because it's hard again it's hard to maintain that but then they they say oh what the heck i'm i'm just gonna you know i have one cookie i might as well have 10 so versus if you had kind of a normal relationship with food you'd let yourself have a cookie and not really worry about it